Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Josh Gondelman. Josh Gondelman is a stand-up comedian and a writer for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. He has a book coming out in the fall of 2019 called Nice Try, but he's worried that you'll forget about it by then. Josh, how could anyone forget about anything you have done when you are one of the most delightfully memorable people ever to exist. Well, thank you so much for saying so. I feel just likewise about you, and I very much appreciate your having me on your podcast to give advice to people we'll never meet. I am so excited. Um, I was thinking of you in particular this morning because I got a question on the live chat that uh, was not directly about living in New York City, but it seemed very clear to me uh, to be a problem about moving to New York City, which was this person wrote in and said, I'm contemplating moving to a big city after I graduate college with my best friend. The problem is that her boyfriend, who's a year younger than us, will move in with us eventually. He's really charismatic, interesting and tidy, but he does a lot of cocaine. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's why he's charismatic, interesting and tidy. He has a lot of energy to clean his yes. room due to the cocaine. Yep, he's got he's got a lot to talk about and a lot of energy for cleaning. I also feel like what a hilarious backhanded compliment. Like when you're the nicest thing you can say about someone when you're like, I don't like him, but he's very charismatic. That's a euphemism for he does a lot of cocaine. Oh, whenever somebody opens with like this person's very charismatic, what they are saying is essentially like this person bears all the hallmarks of like sociopathy. Um, like if yes. you lead with charismatic to describe someone, you mean like, you know, like Hitler, like it's never, I think this is a good, reliable person that you should make an important part of like your rich inner life. It's always like, yeah, yes. watch out for this person. They will shine brightly at parties and steal your stuff. Yeah. Um, I think that the, it was just really helpful to think like, yes, I can counsel a young person. Do not move in with somebody who, you know, does a lot of cocaine because it yeah. often happens, especially if you live in a big city in your 1920s. That's not the age in your, in your 1920s. 20s. I don't know. In the, the 1920s. The popular decade for cocaine. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. You will probably end up like accidentally living with people who do cocaine that you did not know did cocaine. And it will make your life slightly less convenient because people who do cocaine uh, like to do a lot of cocaine and they like to talk about it a whole bunch. And they like to invite other people over to talk about how great the cocaine is. Um, and that makes it challenging to sleep or do anything that's not cocaine. Yeah, it's a it's a real mess. Like at least live with someone you don't already know does it. Yeah, if you're blindsided by it, that's fine. Uh, it's not ideal, but like that shouldn't be one of the central things you know about a person when you're moving in with them. Right. If like your number one concern is, I know he does a lot of cocaine. You have sufficient information to. That's you know. a big. It's a big red flag. Yeah. That he he definitely does more than a little cocaine. If you already know how much cocaine he does. Yeah, that's it's like the tip of the iceberg. It's like you see the little pile on top of the mirror, but underneath the mirror, there's a giant pile. <laughs> I, I think this is really true, which is that like 
if whatever amount of cocaine you know someone to do, the answer can always be more, but never less. No one ever does less cocaine than you think they do. Like, if you think they do none and they do none, you're right. If you think they do a little, they definitely don't do none. Yes, 100%. I also enjoy the roaring 20s as a euphemism for the time of your life where you do the most cocaine. 100%. Just like going back to the 1920s. Walk into a party like, has anyone noticed that the stock market seems to be crashing? Is just like a code for let's all go to the bathroom. A lot of black and white movies in here, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) I believe that I'm picking up what you're putting down, Machine Gun Kelly. Um, I was not expecting to spend so much of the show talking about cocaine use. Um, I don't advocate the use of cocaine. I hope you don't advocate the use of cocaine. I do advocate the use of good practical advice, and I would love to dispense some with you right now. My pleasure and uh, a beautiful segue. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I would love it if you would read our first question, not least because in my mind, you are the marriage and wedding expert. Um, So that's why I saved all these ones for you. Dear Prudence, I'm getting married in June. We just sent out Save the Dates when my aunt and uncle announced they are getting a divorce. My uncle had an affair with an old family friend, someone we have invited to the wedding. My cousins are devastated. Two of them are in the wedding party, and I've spent more time comforting them than planning out the last details of my reception. Both my uncle and aunt have told me they will attend, even if I have to rearrange the seating chart. I have talked to the family friend and asked her not to come for the sake of my cousins. This greatly upset her, and she complained to my uncle. The uncle backtracked and now says they both have to come or he is not coming at all. I love my family and want them all there, but I am appalled by my uncle's insistence on immediate family acceptance of his affair. He is still legally married to my aunt, and both him and his mistress seem to be offended that my cousins are upset about this. The youngest one is only 15. What should I do here? I do not want to estrange anyone, but someone is not coming to this wedding. Can you imagine the levels of confidence it would take to say, like, no, you're going to have to invite both my wife and my mistress to this wedding, or else I will decline to, like, deign you with the pleasure of my company? That is Roaring Twenties confidence, I'll tell you that. That man has done that's the situation some here. cocaine. <laughs> At least. Yeah. But yeah, that is what a lot of um, chutzpah, as uh, as my grandfather would describe it, that is an incredibly uh, imposing request and an incredibly uh, onerous request. Yes. Sometimes people will write into me and there will be something like, uh, this difficult relative of mine says, if I don't do outrageous thing, they won't come to the wedding. And I'm like, congratulations, you don't have a problem. This person has just decided to disinvite themselves from your wedding and they sound like a real dang pill. So Yeah, you get to invite someone you like better. Yeah, your wedding just got improved. And I understand the reason Mm -hmm. people interpret it as a problem is part of what it means is somebody is mad at me, somebody who has already demonstrated they are willing to, like, do pretty inappropriate things and possibly go out of their way to make my life difficult. So it's not all, like, you know, guns and roses. Nope, that's not the phrase. It's puppies and rainbows, sunshine and roses. It's not guns and roses. Sunshine, peaches and cream. Something. It's not all gravy. But it's um, not all Guns and Roses. It's, it's like Guns and Roses is pretty awesome. Yeah. Like if your life was good, like 1994 era Guns and Roses, you, you'd be like mm-hmm. living with that level of uh, success. Right. It's not all appetite for destruction. Sometimes life is lose your illusion, too. Now, there's there's a level of happiness that probably involves a lot of cocaine. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so so obviously it's not fantastic. But yeah, like you have just solved your problem, which is that I don't want the woman who was just involved in the breakup of my aunt and uncle's marriage uh, at my wedding. Uh, and if those if my uncle doesn't want to go without her, then great. Like, OK, I, I accept your like non RSVP uh, and, yes. and, and say, like, don't come. That's fine. 
even under the the most benign circumstances, when someone recuses themselves from your wedding, that's okay. Like, you don't have to be upset about that, right? Like, if a friend is like, oh, I just can't get off of work. It's right. like, okay, I get that. You have your life and I have mine. And there's definitely, like, 20 people on this list that I haven't invited. And there will be someone to fill your spot. And I would love for you to be there, but it's okay that you're not there. But when it's someone who's, like, holding the wedding hostage or the invitation hostage, it's like, good riddance on this one occasion. You know what I mean? Like, what? Oh, you're not going to come make my wedding worse? Oh, no, I'll have to enjoy myself. Like, the letter writer mentions, like, their cousins are devastated and they've actually had to take a lot of time off planning the wedding to comfort them. So, like, it is additionally lousy that the uncle and uh, family friend in question are like, great, we have no problem, like, watching the kids struggle with the revelation that, like... Our, you know, my marriage is crumbling because I cheated on my partner with an old family friend that everyone trusted. And I just don't really care if it makes was, my kids upset. Was already so close with my family that they were already coming to the wedding. Yeah. I mean, this was like a, you know, I understand that marriages fall apart and that um mm-hmm. that it's not always like the most pleasant looking thing. But like this was objectively like a, a, a thoughtless um, act that that has ramifications beyond just like the two of you got to have a fun affair. Um, and it's very weird to like compound that with like, invite us to the wedding. If my kids are crying, who cares? More cocaine, please. Right. Like, no, right. they're not coming to your wedding. Great. As Guns N' Roses would say, oh nothing lasts forever, even cold November rain. Yeah. That being said, that oh. is a rude. It's just like so rude. Like, like how would you... Like, if I were in a fight with, you know, if I were invited to a wedding Mm -hmm. and I had had, like, an awkward social situation with, um, with someone, you know, like, maybe I had a falling out over, uh, some misunderstanding, I would feel so uncomfortable and I would, like, I would say, hey, we had this terrible thing. I hope it's okay that I still come. I know there's this weird tension. I would certainly not be like, if this other person is coming, I'm out, even though I wronged them. Right? Ugh. No, I just, like, I am so uncomfortable at the prospect of being at a wedding where anyone would feel mad at me that the idea of showing up and be like, what's up? I ruined your aunt and uncle's marriage. Here to watch somebody else start a different marriage. Let's do this. Why are those bridesmaids crying even more than bridesmaids usually do? <laughs> what's going on there? In fairness... Uh, I don't want to pin all the blame on the old family friend because the person responsible for, you know, not cheating on his wife was the uncle in question. But everything else still stands. Oh, yeah. One hundred percent. I'm one hundred percent putting this on the uncle who I'm certain is the the happiest, wealthiest person I've ever heard of. Oh, also. He, he definitely owns a boat, which is like the cocaine oh, of transportation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. This yeah, is, for sure. We got to move on to our next question. I have a feeling we could like uh, riff on all of these. No, we're just having too much fun. Um, sure. And this next one definitely gets like a little bit more intense. The subject line is just, I think I'm an abusive spouse. Dear Prudence, my husband and I have been together for around nine years. Lately, I feel like I have the emotions of a child in regards to my feelings towards him. I oscillate between contented love and absolute searing hatred. I can go from being completely positive I hate him and want a divorce to being grateful and adoring in a matter of hours, maybe less. 
The real problem is that I unload all these feelings onto him, whatever they may be, whenever they happen. The arguments that trigger this kind of intense anger are usually minor. I've never been like this with any previous partners at all. I think my anger stems from the fact that he fell in love with another woman almost exactly a year ago and more or less forced me to try to accept and take part in polyamory, attending groups, reading books, going to a poly couples therapist, and even encouraging me to meet other people too. The whole situation wore on my mental and physical health heavily, and I still think about it daily. He's done everything to try and build up our relationship again, but I can't seem to stop this venomous hatred from spewing forth when I'm angry, including telling him that he should have picked her. Am I abusive? How can I stop? So this one really took me by surprise because uh, it, it went in a direction that I was definitely not anticipating. The turn in the middle was certainly not what I thought the natural progression of that message would be. Right. And and the letter writer doesn't include a lot of details about what that intense anger looks like when they unleash it on their husband. So yes. um, it's certainly possible that they're doing or saying things that are, um, you know, so over the top belittling or threatening um, or, 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 you know, intimating violence that there is something that, that does need to be addressed. But so far... The only detail that I see here is that I can't stop this venomous hatred from spewing forth, including telling him he should have picked her, uh, which is not an abusive statement. No, it could be said, certainly, hatefully, but I don't think that qualifies as uh, abuse unless you scream it in that person's face uh, 23 hours a day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, I don't I don't ever want to say to someone like I can guarantee that you 100 percent aren't. Yeah. Um, but based on what you have described to me, uh, I think you are in a terrible marriage uh, with somebody mm-hmm. you should not keep being married to. Yes. To me, it seems like the answer to the question, am I abusive, is you haven't described abusive behavior, although it may exist. And the answer to the question, what should I do about it, is leave your husband. Yeah, because you say, I think my anger stems from the fact. And then you describe like eight things that are awful, um, which is not to say that polyamory is objectively awful, but your husband cheated on you, fell in love with somebody else, and then his response to the hurt and betrayal that you felt was like, we're poly now, so come and do all this stuff and swallow your own feelings and get excited for me and start dating other people, um, and that's horrible and painful and and just just deeply, deeply upsetting. So when you say things like he's done everything to try and build up our relationship again, frankly, I, I don't really know what he could have done in a year um, that would be that would do everything. Like he doesn't want the same things you want. He wants to be polyamorous. Maybe he has stopped pushing it on you because you've made yourself really clear or something. But um, he doesn't want to love you the way that you want to be loved. And there's like, you know that, right? Like, this is very, very clear. Yeah, it, that's not the kind of thing that that, um, that can be decided for you, right? That right. we are in a polyamorous relationship. That's like a, a decision that takes a lot of mutual uh, trust and mutual mutual desire for that. Yeah. Um, however it looks. Yeah. And, and it I can't think, like, come on the heels of like, by the way, I cheated on you and now we're going to do this fun thing. Like, that's not how it works. Or even if it's like, I'm in love with this other person. So now we're Polly. You're coming along on this adventure is like a very unfair thing to foist upon a person. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and an unkind thing. 
Uh, I think I know why all of this anger is coming up periodically. It seems like on some level you have convinced yourself that because your husband has like, quote unquote, done everything to try and build up your relationship again, you are not allowed to leave him. Um, and you you need to. Like, this is not something that I think you guys should work through in therapy, um, which I, I think is sometimes the case when there has been infidelity in a monogamous relationship, but both parties want to rebuild love and trust. Um, this guy is an asshole. Like, he sucks. And, and he treated you very, very poorly. And the reason that you vacillate between love and fury throughout the day um, is because you loved this man very much. You love this man. And he hurt you so, so, so badly um, and then asked things of you that you did not want to give. And then you convinced yourself for a time, at least, that you could do those things for him. And that didn't work. And now you're going to try to pretend that you're okay and you're not okay. This is not an okay relationship. What he did was awful. Um, So no, you're not abusive. You're miserable. You are miserable. And those brief moments where you feel grateful and adoring, I I don't believe are moments of true peace and contentedness. Uh, I I believe that they're desperate because you're terrified of losing him, even though you've already lost him. Um, And I think that the sooner you get yourself to a counselor who is not a poly couple counselor who apparently thinks that you can counsel someone unwillingly into polyamory, uh, but somebody who's really going to like sit with you and acknowledge the pain and distress that his cheating and then after the facts attempt at like non-unanimous polyamory felt for you, um, you're, you're going to feel a lot better. It's going to feel worse before it gets better, but I, I got to tell you, I see... I do. You don't even say he apologized. You say he's done everything to try and build up our relationship again. And you describe no details. Which like that to me, it feels like saying my husband backed over my foot with his car because he wasn't watching where he was driving. And he's done everything to get me medical attention since then. It's like you're not supposed to don't do the first thing. The first thing is the problem. You're not supposed to run over your your spouse's foot uh, yeah. without their consent. Um, you know, if your spouse is super into that, I guess, I mean, like, God bless. Um, and, and do it safely and do it in a healthy way. But that's always the thing. Somebody's got to be into it. So being like, I cheated on yes. you, we're poly now, is so different from two people saying, let's explore polyamory together. Uh, right. One is great and the other is awful. Um consent makes all the difference in the world. So yeah, you are not abusive, I don't think, based on what you have described here. I think your husband uh, is a very, very bad husband um, and also does not want the same kind of relationship that you do and that you need to actually really acknowledge how angry you are with him and how much you do want a divorce, even though that scares you and and makes you feel like you're going to lose something. But that's already gone. This guy fell in love with another woman and then he wanted to keep doing that. That's what he wants. And if that's not you, what you want out of a marriage, then you shouldn't be with him anymore. And and the even if the answer is you are you have been abusive, even if that has happened, all the other stuff still stands like that doesn't change the fact that like this is the seems like the wrong relationship for your needs. You're not getting your needs met and in a really real grave way. Yeah. So if there are ways in which you are 
you know, preventing him from leaving a room, attempting to monitor his private correspondence, attempting to control like when and where he goes on a daily basis, um, telling him that he's worthless, screaming constantly at him, throwing things, damaging his things, uh, you know, uh, physically intimidating him. If you are doing any of those things, then you also need to get into anger management uh, and separate Mm -hmm. physically from him. Um, But again, you don't describe any of those things. I I Mm -hmm. think your last year has been so intense and you have felt so alienated from reality in part because your husband's attempt to force you into polyamory made you feel alienated from reality. You're worried that you're abusive right now because you have no real sense of like how you are grounded and how other people see you. But nothing you've described here sounds abusive. It just sounds emotional. And and justifiably so. Yeah, I I would not be thrilled if this was how somebody broached the topic of polyamory with me. And I was like, no, thanks. And they were like, here's some books anyway. By the way, I've set up some dates for you. Like, that's not listening. Right. That's not what you thought your marriage was going to be. And that's like a, a giant shift. Yeah. And an unfair one to foist on someone. All right. Well, at least the next letter, uh, it's a problem. It's an issue. But I don't think I need to recommend divorce to anyone, which is great because I always like it when I don't have to tell people to get divorced. Would you please be so good as to read it? Of course. Uh, Subject, family but not family. Dear Prudy, my wonderful partner is one of eight adult siblings in a close-knit family. They all live near one another and see each other on a regular basis. They're great but very inward-facing and self-contained. Their parents, Betty and Carl, demand that all holidays, including some of their own making, are spent together with traditions strictly adhered to. Many pictures are taken at each event, but it's mostly just different groupings of, quote, blood family, and their many children, rarely spouses and partners. This makes the rest of us feel left out. But when one in-law suggested that we take a picture together, Betty complained that we were being rude. Were we? Honestly, all the non-blood relations feel left out during picture-taking and in general. If a non-blood family member suggests an activity, it's virtually always shut down, but participation in the traditions is mandatory. I've tried to bring this up to my partner, and they've tried to be understanding, but it continually comes back to the importance of their family. They're not bad people, but they're not very inclusive. Prudy, can you think of a safe, compassionate way to bring this up for discussion? Can we do this as an extended family? This is not just me, but for all the married-ins. Woo! I just want to take a quick moment to shout out my extreme gratitude for not having in-laws. And I would like to shout out my extreme gratitude for having very lovely in-laws. Yeah, this is not helpful. This is just us being like, I'm glad this isn't a problem that I have right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's <laughs> imagine if that was all your advice. Yeah. Just like, man, thank goodness. Your life sounds very stressful. Yeah. Have you tried solitude? It's awesome. You get to sleep alone, yeah. take up the whole bed, and no one tells you how to stand in photographs. Highly recommend it. And you all only have one set of relatives to get flustered with ever. Yeah, this sounds like hanging out at Kennebunkport, right? Like this sounds like going down with like JFK (laughs) on the weekend and being like, oh, wake up at five in the morning for like the lobster racing. Yeah, it's very, very Camelot. Um, I I do think the one thing about can we take a picture like that is that is not rude to ask, can we be included in this picture of family? Maybe if they wanted a picture and then a second picture with the full family, both the married-ins and the uh, blood relatives. God, what a distinction. Like, yeah, it blood felt very like... So metal. Yeah, it definitely feels metal. The bloodline must continue. Oh uh, very, uh, very intense. But it, I think it's like, it's not wrong of them to have traditions that they value, but it is 
not right to make them to make others feel excluded when they're being invited and forced to participate in auxiliary ways. Yeah. So I, I would say, you know, if Betty complains that you're being rude, a of all, y'all outnumber her, right? Like, um, even if all the blood siblings like get on a mm-hmm. team, like you the, at the least eight outnumber blood princes and prince. Oh, sorry, I God. talked right over you. The princes of the blood, the blood royal, <laughs> they must be allowed to persist. <laughs> I could do this all day. Yes. But yeah, you like. Yeah, I you really know, like it. You can absolutely say like, hey, we're going to do one with like all the married couples. And if Betty and Carl are like, we don't want to be in that one because we didn't give birth to any of you. You can be like, fine, no problem. Like this. This is great. You've already taken your pictures. We're going to do this other one. Um, that's perfectly appropriate. Also, if not, everyone wants to take a giant picture. I. I tend to feel like group photographs are a, a net drain rather than a net positive. I understand other people really love documenting when big groups of people get together and that different people might have different values in such an arena. But yeah, if it is important to you to take pictures with like certain clusters of people, just do it. You don't have to wait until you're all staging a big family photograph and get permission from Betty and Carl. Uh, if you know you and three of your favorite siblings want to take a picture or a bunch of the married couples want to take a picture together, you can absolutely go for it. And if somebody says something like that's rude you can say no that's not rude at all we're just really excited to take a picture together yeah especially if they're making you attend holidays of their own design yeah and i would say to that too like you say if a you know a a a non like dauphin where it's like oh you are not of the blood royale you must walk backwards into versailles or whatever uh gets shot Mm -hmm. down like you guys can do something else like if they're like no we're all gonna go like sled dogging into the sun today i assume this is like a very wealthy family that could be just yeah. from the names Betty and Carl. Um, but yeah, if mm-hmm. you guys want to do something else, do something else. If, my friend, you think you might not want to go on this vacation, you could send your spouse to be with their kind of irritating family and you could do something else. Love to advocate for separate vacations. Just want to like throw a shout out here. If you would rather take a trip with some of your friends um, who don't like require a, a DNA test before they listen to your ideas, uh, you should do that. It seems like they are asking an awful lot of participation in all holidays plus made up holidays of the family's own devices. So like, yeah, you don't that is more than you owe them as like a reciprocal partner. You don't owe your partner every holiday plus bonus holidays. So like you need to do things that will make you feel um celebrated as well yes good okay uh what by the way would just be like one piece of in-law advice that you would give the world to the people who are listening right now and suffering oh my gosh before we even got married my wife said to me the first time that we visited her family she goes if this all becomes a lot and you need to like take a nap or something or take 15 minutes and just like be in the room where we're staying by yourself uh do that and i have done the same i've reciprocated that for her and i think that's like the, what a blessing to give someone. Uh, and I think like the the gift of solitude and knowing that your partner will not be mad at you and will uh, shield you from the kind of blame of others. I think that's like a really beautiful gift to give. I just want to like take a minute and rise up and call you blessed for talking about the gift of solitude, <laughs> which is always the greatest gift anyone can give your partner. Um, just leave them alone. Move away. Move to the moon. That's maybe too far. I think we all have different comfort levels when it comes to solitude. Uh, But that's definitely something that everyone should consider. Like, have I given my partner the gift of solitude today? And if not, why? It is like so 
so kind, especially amongst their family, because you feel the pressure like to be on your best behavior 24 seven. And for, cause you can't just take solitude, right? Because then you seem like you're being petulant. But if like, if you give it to someone, it is like a real, uh, high level care you can give to a partner. Yeah. So this next letter is really something I edited out so many details and it is still a letter just like packed with details. Um, And so I'm looking forward to trying to parse through which details matter and which details don't. But the subject is simply, boyfriend's one friend is so unpleasant, we may have to break up. Listeners, spoiler alert, I think they should probably break up. Um, Here we go. Dear Prudence, I've been with my boyfriend Bill for a year and a half. Things are great between us, and we have met each other's friends and family. Our friends are scattered across the U.S. because of grad school, past jobs, and moves. I enjoy almost every person Bill has introduced me to, except one, Lisa. Lisa's a friend of his who's a lesbian who doesn't really date, and in fact has such a devotion to a small group of her grad school friends that it borders on obsessive. Bill happens to be in that group. She talks without ceasing or breathing to list all of their skin allergies, taste preferences, how they arrange the items in their bathroom, or recite every single camping trip they've ever taken, but only with the most dry, mundane, excruciating details. I get this info over and over and over and over. She's a steamroller. She talks over me. She cannot read social cues, and she makes me feel trapped and miserable. Bill knows that I don't like her, but insists she means no harm. I find her grating and unpleasant. So far, Lisa's lived 4,000 miles away from me and Bill. I can live with a visitor two a year. But yesterday, Bill told me that Lisa is moving to our city in three months, and he is encouraging her to move into his apartment building. We don't live together. A mercy. Bill knows I find Lisa difficult. He doesn't know I was up all last night crying at the thought of seeing her so much more. Do we have to break up? I love Bill, but time with Lisa is hell. I have to dump him, don't I? I don't think anyone's ever quite gotten, like, as as there at the end of a letter in a while. So, like, yes, you do have to dump him because you are going to be miserable when this thing happens and he wants this thing to happen and it sounds like it's pretty likely to happen. So I think that you guys should break up. Josh, is there anything else you think this letter writer should think about or bear in mind? I, I do. There's one mitigating circumstance, I think, which is, like, if you don't have to hang out with Lisa, that's that seems salvageable. To me... The most alarming part was, I have to dump him, don't I? Because that feels like that's the conclusion you want to come to. And I'm a giant fan of telling people what they want to hear. Uh, <laughs> and I think like, so if that's what you if that's what you want to be told, I feel like there's almost never harm in being like, yeah, break up with him, sure. Because um, yeah. you will both find happiness elsewhere. That said, it does seem like Lisa is being um, imposed upon you a lot. And I think if you communicate to Belle how much you don't like Lisa and ask to not do things, especially in small groups, like have Bill and Lisa can have their own time. Again, going back to the gift of solitude uh, and you can do your own thing. If that happens an amount that you can take, right? If it's not like Bill and Lisa time eclipses Bill and reader time, then maybe that's okay. But again, it seems like Lisa is very unpleasant and in a way that you are almost there must be something else because it almost seems like you're grateful for a, a reason to break up with Bill. Is that, is that wrong? Is that Ooh. too judgmental? I, I know. I'm excited. This is like a, this is like a counterintuitive read. I'm kind of into it. Um, yeah. I mean, it. I just have so many 
I'm so curious about Bill's relationship with Lisa because there was a lot of detail about like Lisa's sexual identity, Lisa's mm-hmm. like dating habits, uh, you know, speculation about why Lisa is the way that she is. Um, none of which I think matters a lot. Like it, it, it's not especially important. Um, I don't think like what motivates uh, Lisa's actions. What what really matters is uh, how much can you interact with her socially, which it sounds like it's a very limited amount. Um, and 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 like how much does Bill want to spend time with her? Um, and it sounds like that's and a it lot. It seems like Bill wants yeah to spend a lot of time. Yeah, and it also sounds like he clearly gets something out of their relationship that you don't. There's there's possibly just another uh, side to her that you don't see. It, it may be that you are bringing like some different preconceived ideas about Lisa to the table. I I don't know. But um, if for you, you're like, I I cannot stand being around Lisa. I I think she's one of the worst people to talk to. I can't find a way to like politely but firmly set limits in our conversation. Because by the way, like it is okay to say to somebody, hey, you may not have noticed this, but you're talking really fast and you haven't let me get a word in edgewise. Can we, like, stop and start over? Which can sound terrifying. Like, why would I ever say that? I would sooner let somebody, like, drive me off a cliff than say that. But you actually can. You can do that in a conversation. Or if you want to interrupt someone gently and say, hey, I just want to let you know you've been talking about the skin conditions of people I don't know for the last five minutes. And I'd really like for us to talk about something else. Can we do that? Because we, we've we had this conversation before. Like, I to remind someone that they're telling you the same story that you've heard before is also okay. To go, yeah, hey. I remember you told me before and I pay attention when you talk. That's like, that's not unreasonable, but I I just can't like my wife would have to want to spend so much time with a person that I hate for me to want to end our relationship over it. And and I think that was true at every point in our relationship. Like even if she had a friend that I loathe to be in the same room with the amount of time that they would, she would have to want to spend in that person's presence would have to be so enormous yeah. uh, for me to be like, this jeopardizes our relationship. Yeah. I, I think one of the things here that's, that's significant is like letter writer, you, you mentioned that it seems pretty clear that Lisa doesn't have uh, an easy time reading social cues, but that your strategy with being around Lisa has been, it sounds like nothing but indirect social cues, right? Like since you have never said you are doing this thing, I would like you to stop it. I imagine you're doing this sort of like checking your phone, not making eye contact, looking away, um, only saying like, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, like making excuses, stuff that you yourself would recognize as signs that somebody else was bored, but which for whatever reason, you know, aren't working with her. Um, the fact that you have not tried a different strategy, it, it makes a lot of sense that spending time with her feels worse and worse because she does not know what's going on inside of you in those moments. Um, the way that you are communicating with her isn't working and you haven't tried anything else. So again, that's not to say that Lisa is like secretly a person that you will just love if you really give her a chance. But one thing that you could do in such a situation is talk to your boyfriend and say like, hey, I love you a lot. I understand that your relationship with Lisa is important. I have a really hard time being around her. I want to check in with you because if I spend time with her and she starts talking about other people's like allergies for 20 minutes, um, I want to speak up before I get really irritable and huffy. I don't want to like be rude or snappy with her, but I would like to be able to say, hey, can we talk about something else um, and and like have that conversation and like set limits. And if you are just like, man, half an hour of this is all I've got in me and then I've got to go, um, you can you can say those things to your partner. Um, that hasn't happened. And now you're at a point where he wants her to move in next door. And you're like, if that happens, I've got to end the relationship, which... I understand if he wants to spend a ton of time with her and you cannot stand her, it's probably going to make more sense for you guys to break up. But 
I, I think before you do the breakup, you should at least have one conversation with him uh, where you really lay it out on the line and just say, like, here is how much time and energy I think I could spend being polite to Lisa in my life. If you have a number that's close to that, let's do it. And if not, we got to break up. The fact that you spent last night crying, reader, about the idea of an impending Lisa move, that's a really big thing. And and that's something that you can and should tell Bill. Like, that's information that he could act on or not act on, and that will impact how you feel about this situation. Like, maybe he will, maybe he will feel less inclined to have his old friend, whom you despise, move in next door to him if he knows that that's the level of your dislike for her because it seems like that's um that that has not been communicated to bill and and if yes. that is something that's still important to him then maybe you do need to break up but like he, you i don't think i don't know that he can intuit how bad you feel unless you tell him and and when you tell him that's not imposing that's just like stating your needs and and what he would have to do to meet them it's like which sounds like an ultimatum, but I think to say, like, this really stresses me out. I don't want to be around Lisa this much. You might assume he feels that from you, but, like, it sounds like he doesn't know the degree to which this is important to you. Right. Right. And I, that's really important, too. Like, I don't think you should approach this as, like, Lisa is an objectively bad person and you are wrong to voice me on her. Um so much as here is how hard it is for me to be around Lisa. Here is the level of bad it has gotten. Um that that you you need to share with him like you 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 can't pretend like it's not that bad because that that will make you cry more and i i think just most importantly whatever you do whether you decide to end this relationship or not whether you decide to spend any more time with lisa or not it's absolutely fine not to like her based on your description i think i would probably have a hard time um having a conversation with her too um just don't let your irritation um dictate your tone um whatever you do to her be respectful and be kind and compassionate um, because she may be a difficult person, but she's not a cruel person. She's not a bad person. Um, and don't let the buildup of irritation um, lead you to treat her cruelly or unkindly. Um, it's fine to not want to spend time with her. It's not fine to say something really angry at her in conversation because you don't like her. That's such compassionate advice. Well, I've done that, right? Like there are sometimes people that I get really irritated with or have in my life and I have just kind of built up in my mind, this person deserves my contempt because I feel contempt for them. And so any way that I treat them is kind of okay because I don't like them as opposed to I haven't done enough of a good job setting limits. They may not be a person I enjoy spending time with, but they are not mean, cruel, unkind, uh, hurtful. So they don't deserve that kind of contempt. Like that's a hard lesson to learn, I think. Right. Not everybody, even if you don't like them, deserves to be treated with the full force of how much you don't like them. Yes. Yeah. You got to save that for some really extreme situations. All right. This is the opposite of really extreme situation. This is our last letter. And I think you and I have already talked so much about the themes that that resonate throughout it, that anyone who listens to it will have a good guess as to what our answer is going to be. But we still have to go through the motions. And I wish that you would go through the motions of reading it. Subject. One bed or two? Dear Prudence, my husband and I have issues sleeping in the same bed. He is a wild sleeper and pulls the blankets and pillows everywhere across the bed if he isn't burritoing himself in, leaving nothing for me. I, on the other hand, have anxiety issues that only allow me to sleep easily if the covers are flat. If I go to bed first, this isn't an issue because he can just get into bed and sleep. If he goes to bed first, though, I have to wake him up to straighten the bed out or else just stay awake until he gets up. 
He gets angry with me when I wake him up, or else I just feel guilty because he has sleep apnea and doesn't go back to sleep after I come to bed. All I want is for him to straighten the bed before he gets in it. If he did so, I wouldn't have to wake him up to do it, but he refuses and holds him sleeping in our much less comfortable spare room as a threat, knowing I would rather get to sleep in our bed than me sleep. What do I do to fix this? You need to sleep separately. I mean, it sounds pretty perfect, the, uh, the idea of sleeping separately. My grandparents, for my whole life, this is an arrangement that I'd never seen before or since. My grandparents slept, slept, my grandparents <laughs> slept in two adjacent twin beds with their own covers in one bed frame. And Perfect. Yeah, that's like, a, I've never seen any other couple do it. I've never heard anyone talk about it. But I think that's like that's next level. That is, yeah, that's really they're they're changing the game. Um, I describe it as like a couple from a '50s sitcom who almost figured out how to have sex. Oh my god, that's perfect! <laughs> Thank you. That's all anyone can aspire to in a relationship. <laughs> it is really, it's like high level relationship stuff. I don't know what conversation they had, whether it was just a bed that was on sale in the <laughs> 1940s and they bought it and kept it forever. But like, it's a. It seems like there is a, a physical, practical thing you can do. And and I think the threat of him, you know, sleeping in the other room, like when someone threatens to do a thing that's only going to make your life better. Yes. Think about how to make that thing happen. Right. It's like the uncle saying, like, well, I won't come to my wedding with the woman who I had an affair with. And it's like, great. Right. Thank you for improving my wedding. Yeah, thank you for dunking this ball for me. We're we're done here. Yeah. Uh and, and I think like that that is like it sounds like he's threatening because he's frustrated, but really like that's an outcome that you want something like. So figure out what that outcome is, whether it's separate beds in the same room, whether it's he sleeps on the couch. I mean, it does not sound unreasonable that he would smooth out the covers before he goes to sleep but it also sounds like his sleep disrupts the covers so like you've got to figure figure it out and if it's a non-conventional sleeping arrangement that makes you both happier like you don't have to sleep in one bed spooned together because that's what uh kate winslet does in the movies yeah but i meant kate hudson it's what <laughs> kate hudson does in the yeah movies. sure yeah it's like it would be one thing if you were like sleeping with a partner is really important to me and i love it and there's just this one thing getting in the way um but it, Nothing about this sounds very fun. It sounds like you guys either struggle over the covers or one of you gets mad or one of you can't sleep. Um, and do you know what I think sounds better than that? A beautiful, peaceful night's rest in your own fucking bed. Sleep is so good. We we talked about this. I don't know if it was even before we before we started recording but or before we started the podcast in general. But sleep is so good and getting it is so important and figuring out how to sleep well and have your partner sleep well mm -hmm. is like a really important part of a relationship because it's a, a third of your day that you're unconscious. So it's not like you're arguing when you're asleep in another room or it's right. not like you could be hanging out, but you're not. You're both asleep. So find the way to sleep the best. It, your, your anxiety and his sleep apnea are like relationship corduroy, like rubbing against each other oh in God. an unpleasant way. Yes. And you can... You don't need to do this. You can separate the thighs of your relationship oh my God, and make this gosh. smoother on both of you. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody who gets in the way of your sleep is your enemy and you need to fight <laughs> them until they give up. Um, you are allowed to let somebody disrupt your sleep for the first 30 days of a relationship when you are still falling in love. And afterwards, they need to get their shit together. That's my official ruling. I'm deeply sympathetic. I'm a very, I'm a very clingy uh, and fitful sleeper. And if I, you know, I, I, if I 
roll onto my back, I will start snoring immediately. And my wife will wake me up and go, hey, you're snoring. Knock it off. And she is correct to do that. It is not. I have no purchase to argue like, so I'm snoring. I am disrupting her sleep. And that is unkind of me. So if she has to wake me up, so I roll over and and sleep in a way that doesn't mess up her whole week then uh then that is my job yeah. as a as a partner yeah either get two separate beds in the same room sleep in different rooms uh get one of those divided beds that enable you to have two sets of bedding so that or at the very least get two separate duvets like you have a lot of mm-hmm. options all of which are better than like getting mad at each other every night take any of those other options Right, because you feel like you have to sleep like they sleep and everybody loves Raymond. Right, yeah, and they don't sleep like that. Nobody does. Or like three people do, and they seem very happy and good for them, but we don't need to. Josh, I have saved you one final question. It is a voicemail, uh, and it is about young adults living in New York City, and you are the only person I know in New York City who's talking to me right (laughs) now, so I thought I would save it for you. Thank you. Anytime. Hi, I am a young adult living in New York City, so I have apartment mates. And before we agreed to be apartment mates, we all seemed like we were friends. But two of my apartment mates moved in before I did, and once I got there, they were not friends. I don't know what happened between them. I tried to talk to them about it. They asked me to stay out of it. And it's kind of a hostile and awkward environment in my apartment now because two of my three roommates do not speak to each other. In addition, although I thought I was friends with both of them before, one of them is really getting on my nerves. She complains about everything. And the other one is just quiet and cordial, but not responding to my friendly overtures, not really wanting to be actually friends, hang out with me at all. Um, So I'm very disappointed by this situation, and I'm wondering whether you can imagine anything I would have done or could do that would improve it. Thanks. Bye. Sorry a little bit about that sound. Oh, yeah. That is the very New York City thing of only being able to talk privately on the phone while you're walking down the street, surrounded by the most people. All I can think of is that old vine of just, and they were roommates, and they were roommates. (laughs) They um I think there there is stuff to be done here. I think you can improve the situation. Uh and by that but I don't think you have to make them all friends or be friends with them, but you because they're not obligated to be your friends and it's disappointing to feel like you're missing out on friendship, but there are other people to be friends with. Unfortunately right now it seems like there aren't other people to be roommates with, so you have to set roommate ground rules and talk about that, I think. That's to me the only way to make it better is to make the roommate part better if not the friend part. Yeah, and I tend to be, I think I actually probably lean a little too far on this side of the scale when I do the podcast, which is like, don't make friends at work. You're just there to do your job. Then go home and live your real life. (laughs) Uh, Or like, roommates aren't your friends either. They're your roommates. Be civil and clean up your own dishes. And I realize like if I add all those things together, my general life advice is like, don't sleep with your partner. Don't talk to your roommates. Don't talk to your coworkers. Leave everyone and walk into the sea. Which Build a very tall tower. Stand on it when you have free time and ignore the world. Yes, gaze onto the triple moons of your home planet. (laughs) Yeah, which is not advice that everyone can take. But I would say, I would say, you know, voicemail lever, maybe reduce your friendship expectations of your roommates Mm -hmm. by 30 to 40 percent. Don't get rid of it all. You don't even have to have it. 
but, uh, you know, take it down a significant amount. Um, if all you get out of a roommate situation, especially in New York City, um, is that, you know, at least half of your roommates are polite and and, and that's it. Um, and the other one is just kind of irritating, but not actively like, you know, letting raccoons in to do cocaine from the fire escape at night. You're doing OK. Yeah. On the spectrum of terrible roommates, um, someone that always seems a little irritated and someone who's nice but doesn't want to hang out. Like in New York, that's like an A minus. And so you're doing OK. You're not deficient in any way because of the scenario that that you're in. And yeah, scaling back your expectations is fine. And maybe you were counting on these people to be like part of your social group, but you'll find other people to be friends with. And you like, like Mallory, as you were saying earlier, right? The don't be friends with your mates, don't be friends with people at work. I think the blanket advice too is like, don't be friends with anyone who like isn't warmly receptive or or interested in your friendship. Uh, you don't have to convince anyone of your worth or your, you know, the the goodness of you and your friendship. Right. You don't know what happened between them. You've already asked. They told you to stay out of it. So there's, you know, I, I don't really think that it's a good idea to press that issue further, especially given that mm-hmm. you don't know them super well. Right. Like you say, like you kind of knew them before, but when they showed up, they were like, something happened between us. We don't really want to talk about it. So. Obviously, it's unpleasant when your living environment feels tense and irritating. If you have one roommate who feels like they're always getting on your nerves, it is fine to minimize your contact with them. And it is fine to, like, bring things up as they bother you. Like, if they've left a bunch of dishes out to say, like, hey, put your dishes in the sink. Um, And don't kind of dance around the subject or don't let every time you gaze upon their dishes, let the hate and loathing build up inside of you until one day you leave a horrible note in the kitchen covered in smiley faces talking about how important it is to have a dish policy because that is not the most effective way to communicate your feelings about dishes. So, you know, minimize the contact with the one who is irritating. Um, Accept the politeness and cordialness from the one who is polite and cordial. I think it is pretty clear at this point that y'all are not going to be friends, right? They're not friends with each other. One of them you don't like, and the other one has made it pretty clear that they don't want to be friends with you. I think that's another um, important thing, right? If you're like, this person's always on my nerves, it's not just that they're being that they don't like you. It's like, you don't like them. And that's okay to own like this, this person, I don't want to be friends with this person. That's an okay feeling to have. Like you don't have to want to be friends with someone because you thought you were going to be, or because you live with them. Um, And you just like, your only responsibility to one another is to like be a courteous roommate. Yeah. I think like raising concerns, if they're practical concerns of like, Hey, the way you're getting on my nerves is you don't pull the shower curtain when you shower and the water just pours out into the floor of the entire apartment like that scene in uh, The Shape of Water where the whole apartment is wet. Uh, so, I've not seen like, The Shape of Water. A... You've exposed my shame. No, that's okay. I don't mean to spoil it. There's a scene where the apartment I know she fucks wet. the fish. <laughs> I mean, that's all I came into it knowing. And I was like, who's the fish? Who is she? How does she meet a fish? So that uh, that was all answered pretty quickly. And then I was just like, when do they fuck? <laughs> And it's like most of the way through. Yeah. But watching them get to know each other is pretty lovely. But anyway, if it's like a practical apartment thing, bring it up. If it's just that you don't like their personality, uh, yeah, hang out with them as little as possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like if it, if it's really, really important to you to live with friends uh, at some point, you know, you can try to seek out a living situation with other people you know better and who aren't as 
closed off. Uh, my take on this situation is accept the situation you've got, which is not that bad. Um, you know, it's fine to be a little disappointed. Obviously, you would have liked to have been friendlier with them, but that's not going to happen. So cultivate friendships elsewhere. Spend time at other people's apartments. Uh, go out, you know, spend time with your other friends. Um, and, you know, the next time that you try to move in with friends, it might go even worse uh, because it is a very big city and a lot of people want to live there and it's very expensive. So uh, this is, I feel like I'm not being sufficiently sympathetic to your problem. I don't mean to make it sound no, like I, this is fine. Just it could be way worse. It's not great. On the other hand, right. It could it could certainly be worse. And like it's not a failing of yours that it happen, it's happening the way it is. And like your roommates, like it's it's really hard to move to New York. And it's it's hard when especially to live in a place with three roommates where uh, you don't feel like you have like refuge or or a kind year or like someone to go to a diner with but like those people exist and and you'll find them and you'll bond with them and and it's okay that it's not these people and it doesn't have to be this and uh you're not indebted to live with them forever so it's like a there's an expiration date on this weird strange situation yep yep and um you know if you're still like looking for roommates in another year, uh, I know a charismatic, interesting, tidy guy who's planning on moving to New York City right around that time. <laughs> there is there's one minor flaw in his personality, which is that he does some cocaine, which means he does a lot as much cocaine as is presented to him. Yeah. Or he seeks out. Yeah. At, at a certain point, anyone who does some cocaine will eventually go for how much cocaine is there? That's the amount I do now. I asked a friend once I was writing a, a, like a script or something and I asked a friend, I go, hey, you, you've you been around more than I have and seen more things than I have. And I go, how much like how much cocaine do you do when you do cocaine for the sake of writing this script accurately? And he goes, you you do how much you have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you do it all. And I was like, uh, yeah. And then it's gone. And then if you can't get more, you're done. Yeah, that's that's how you know you're finished. It sounds like we're just this is a podcast where we give advice on how much cocaine to do, but it's not. It does make us both sound very worldly when uh, I think Mm -hmm. in in reality, you and I have probably uh, had a lot, lot less of opportunities for cocaine in our lives than many of our contemporaries. I, I, I often had the feeling that I have spent my entire life leaving parties about 45 minutes before the cocaine broke out. I, re- I saw it. I didn't even see it for most of college. And then I remember someone, I was at a just a friend's house uh, and their roommates were all doing coke. And then they offered it to me very generously. And I said, no, thank you. <laughs> and that was the end of that, that is friendship. A, that was it, the end of that friendship. That is a really like that's 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 a parent's dream, right? Which is just that's exactly how it's going to go down. Right. Not doing drugs, but maintaining politeness. That is like, I think if I told my parents that, uh, I don't think I told them that story Anytime close to when it happened. But I think if I had, they would like be worried and then they would be instantly relieved that my uh, my instincts kicked in as they had programmed them to. It is a real Midwestern problem of just like drugs. I can't do drugs, but I can't be rude. Yes. I have, uh, I'm often mistaken for Midwestern or Canadian. I understand that. I am Midwestern, and um, so I am never mistaken for it in as much as I simply <laughs> am. But I can definitely see where people get that impression. Are you like a native East Coaster? I grew up just outside Boston, which nobody guesses. I would not have. I spent, I spent a really long time being confused that Boston is north of New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a little north and and then east. People don't think I'm from there because I'm never like trying to fight strangers 
or like crying at the sea. You know, I mean, that actually does describe a fair amount of my life. Um, And I'm not even a little bit from Boston. (laughs) I barely even know where it is. So everything in life is a little bit of a surprise. Josh, thank you so much for being on the show. This was fabulous. You are fabulous. And uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm I, sorry I last worded you so much. I just uh, like you would say a thing and then I would get excited to say another thing. Please don't apologize for being a guest on my show because you were supposed to be a guest. And that's what guests do is they talk to me. Thank you, Mallory. Thank you for having me. It was a, a joy. Absolutely. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to Slate.com slash Dear Prudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to Slate.com slash Plus to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute tops. Thanks for listening. Looking for more from Slate? Amicus is Slate's show about the law and, of course, the Supreme Court. Dahlia Lithwick explores court decisions, arguments, and the justices on the bench to shine a light on litigation in the time of Trump. Get deep into the legal weeds and hear some of the nation's greatest legal minds dissect what's going on in the courts in the country. You'll find a new episode in your podcast feed every other Saturday morning.